Welcome to the Renaissance Church Podcast. Our mission is to glorify God and to make disciples by bringing the gospel into all of life in all the earth. This is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church here in Richmond, Texas. And if you've not joined us in a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we would love to have you join us. You can find out more information at rin-church.org. And I pray that you are encouraged and edified by the proclamation of God's word today. Matthew chapter 27. I want to read a portion of the crucifixion story. This is in verse 38 through 44. Here's what it says. Then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him and said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Why did Jesus have to die? That's what I want to talk about this morning. Why did Jesus have to die. We're, we're starting this morning a two-week mini-series on the cross that's preparing us as we step into Good Friday uh, during Holy Week. And um, we have a real danger with the cross. It's the danger of familiarity. In your house, you probably have pictures or uh, objects uh, decoration that you've put up, and maybe when you first put that up, you stopped and you you kind of you might have even measured. You might have got your level out to make sure everything was level. You you picked the right place. You might have talked about it with your spouse. I mean, do you like it? I, I think I like it. it. Looks good there, right? So you did all that work, and then you know for the few weeks after that, you'd walk into the room and you'd kind of admire, like, yeah, I, I like it there. It's nice, you know. But then, you know, time goes on and this thing that has been prominently placed in your home begins to sort of just sort of disappear to your eye. It's like you, you see it, but you don't. And that's how it is with the cross. It's, it's something that is so prominently uh, placed in our culture. We see it on buildings. We see it on logos. We see it on chains that people wear around their necks. And yet it can become a symbol that is void of significance for us. We can lose the wonder. And this morning, I want to begin the series that we've called To Die For, To Die For. You've probably used that phrase before when you've gone to a restaurant and you ordered that dish that was just like, oh, that's amazing, right? And, and you brought your friends and you're like, you've got to get this. It is to die for, right? Yeah, it's to die for. It's so good. You've got to try this. And what I'm praying is that we would just have a renewed wonder at the cross of Jesus. And uh, today I want to begin talking about his cross and then next week, I want to talk about our cross. 
But we're going to talk today about his cross. And I want to explore this question, why did Jesus have to die? What did Jesus have to die for? Why the cross? Maybe you've asked the question. Maybe you've heard someone ask the question. Maybe you, you know that people might ask the question in a combative sort of way, like, why did Jesus have to die? I want to explore that. And apparently, that's not a modern question, because in the passage that we just read, that's basically what they're saying. Come down. Save yourself. Come off the cross. If you're really the son of God, show us. Prove it. Why would you have to die. The context of, is that this is uh, happening in a place called Golgotha. In fact, I have a picture of this, uh, and it's known as the place of the skull. Now, there are two different locations that scholars are like, maybe this is it, maybe that's it. This is one of those locations, and you can see that kind of place that I circled looks like a skull, and that's why they called it Golgotha, the place of the skull. Jesus is crucified between two criminals. They're mocking him, and it's uh, in a place where it says people are walking past. So there's all these people who have come to Jerusalem for a celebration called Passover. If you know the history of Israel, it's when they were in the exodus from Egypt, the very last plague that um, Moses is commanded to bring against them. And the people are told, if you will sacrifice a lamb and take that and sprinkle that blood on your doorpost, then the angel of death will pass over your home. So this was this is a key part of, of the story of salvation and a key part of their history. And many are there and they're celebrating the Passover. And what's happening in this moment is like all these prophecies of the Old Testament are being fulfilled in this one moment, in this one time. It's just mind-blowing. In Psalm 22, verse 7, it said that all who see me mock me. And these people are fulfilling the prophecies that had been spoken hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. And what's interesting about it is they actually confirm for us that everybody knew that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God. Did you hear that in the passage? For he said, I am the Son of God. I'll tell you why that's important. Is that there are people in our culture who today would say, Jesus never claimed to be God. That's not what he said. You guys are fools if you believe that. Our, our friends that are Muslim and the teaching of Islam, this is one of their, their key points is that they respect Jesus, but they say that he never ever claimed to be the Son of God. But clearly, everybody understood that Jesus had claimed to be the Son of God. And here's what's important to notice, is that Jesus didn't die because the Romans were brutal. And Jesus didn't die because he ticked off a bunch of Jewish leaders, right? It's not like they finally got him. And here's what I mean is, is Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to raise it up. Meaning, this happened at a very specific moment during 
Passover when the sacrificial lamb would be sacrificed and the blood would run down. And Jesus did not allow this to happen until it was the right moment. So he didn't die for those reasons. But there are a few possible motivations for us when we ask the question, what I want us to consider are three perspectives. We actually see them in the text that we read today. The, the text tells us that there are the Gentiles that are there and they're mocking him and there are the Jews that are there mocking him. And then of course we have the cross standing in the middle of all of that. And I want to look at three perspectives, the, the Jewish perspective, the Gentile perspective, and the perspective of the cross. And there's an incredible passage of scripture. It's 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and verses 23 and 24. And here's what Paul says. And he, he, he weaves these perspectives together beautifully. Here's what he says. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. Verse 23, he says, but we, pe we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul is talking about these three perspectives, and he says, look, it's, it's a stumbling block to one, and it's foolishness to another. Let's just talk about these perspectives for a minute, because they actually apply to us today. They are very much active in our culture right this moment. The Jewish perspective. These were the religious people. They had been given the law of God, right? They, they had a high justice quotient. They were commanded to execute judgment and justice in certain cases based upon the law. And you know, Jesus was Jewish. And by the way, Jesus was never anti-Judaism. What Jesus was against is what we would call moralistic religiosity, do you know what I'm talking about? Let me give you an example. When Casey and I first got married, she knew, and she was right, that she was going to be this incredible grace and blessing to my life. She knew this. And one evening, she was, after we had cooked dinner at our house, she loaded the dishwasher. And in her mind, she's like, you know, he must feel so blessed to have a wife who would load the dishwasher for him. And here's what Chris, the Pharisee, did. <laughs> I opened the dishwasher and I said, you know, let me teach you the most efficient way to load the dishwasher. Learn from your pastor. That was a bad move, guys, okay? That was so dumb. So, you know, the, the law should say, thou shalt wash your dishes because you don't want bugs and rodents in your house, right? That's what the law would say. But Chris added to the law, and Chris said, 
Thou shalt wash the dishes so that bugs and rodents don't live in your house, and thou shalt also stack them appropriately into the dishwasher, starting with the largest dish first, next to the silverware container, and then in order and descending size, making room for the Tupperware in the back, and then the bowl should be next to that, and then the cup should be on the side. Please put the business end of the fork up so that you know you get the actual full wash. Thus saith Chris. And guess what? My wife was not amused, as you can imagine. Which, this is what's so crazy, is this is how deep this goes into us. It's a legalistic moralism. And what Jesus was against, okay, was people who had taken the word of God, the command of God, and they had added onto it to the degree that they had actually lost the original essence. And what they had done is they had found a way to be, quote unquote, righteous by, and, and at the same moment to be ungodly or to be unrighteous before God. And Jesus is saying, no, that is not true. That is not right. And just as I needed a good rebuke, Jesus brings a strong rebuke against moralistic religiosity. One of the key insights of Martin Luther is that religion is the default mode of the human heart. Meaning, even if you would say, I am not religious at all, there's a great chance that the operating system of religion is happening inside of you at this very moment. And if you're listening to me thinking, I'm so glad I'm not like one of those people, just watch out. Because you might be secretly religious. It could be religious zeal about the environment, global warming, or your political affiliation. We, or it could be loading the dishwasher. That's so dumb, right? So dumb. But we can have this religious zeal that is not based on true righteousness. We could do right things from the wrong heart. We could look heavenly on the outside, but be hellish on the inside. We could uphold human traditions at the expense of true holiness and godliness. This perspective of moralistic religiosity, we could also call it legalism. And what it betrays is an underlying self-righteousness. One who can quickly excuse their own wrong while demanding punishment for someone else's wrong. That's the first perspective. The second perspective, the Gentiles. The Gentiles were different. Paul says that they wanted wisdom. And the Gentiles were moral relativists. So we have legalists and relativists. They were hedonists, meaning they wanted maximum pleasure and minimum suffering. And so when Jesus is hanging on a cross, they say, that is foolish. Why would you suffer like that? Because what is sin anyway? It's just a social construct designed by people who were superstitious. And it needs to change and evolve with the times. That's the message of a relativist. Isn't this just a social construct? 
And the thing is, it's a sliding scale in which the standard is always moving. And I think it's always moving down, but I haven't confirmed that, but I'm pretty sure the standard's always going down when it comes to relativism. And it says this, sins really aren't that bad. Surely not worth dying for. Surely not worth dying for. So the first perspective, the legalist says, I mean, sin is bad, but I'm taking care of that. I'm working really hard to fix it. I've got that. I don't need you to die, Jesus. The relativist says, sins aren't even really, I don't even believe in sin, so surely I don't need you to die for me. But here's the thing, the cross says something completely different than legalism and relativism, and it's foolishness to both. Both legalism and relativism mockingly say, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And both of them are prone to call good evil and evil good. And in the face of both of these perspectives, this third perspective, the cross stands on which Jesus silently and obediently suffers. So why did Jesus have to die? Here's the first point. Jesus didn't have to die hypothetically. Now, before you call me a heretic, let me explain what I mean. Jason preached from a passage last week, Acts 17, verse 24 through 25, and here's what it said. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands, meaning you cannot build a house big enough for him. And it says, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things, meaning this, God did not come to die for you because he needed something from you. Does that make sense? It wasn't like he was lacking something and he's like, man, if I will just rescue human beings, then I'll finally be complete. It doesn't provide him with anything that he needs. He is completely self-sufficient in and of himself. And let me just tell you this, you do not want a God who is not completely self-sufficient in and of himself. Rather, the story is, we're the needy ones. Another passage, 2 Peter 2, 4. Listen, this is humbling. Here's what he says. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, okay, angels sinned. Do you know the story of, of how uh, the angels fell, became demonic, the, the, the devil and his angels? It says, for if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment, meaning this, there was never like a and I'm gonna go redeem them, kind of moment. They sinned, they were cast into hell, period. Here's my point. It was not necessary for Jesus to die to save any one of us. 
He, he could have chosen in perfect justice to have left us in our sins, awaiting judgment. He could have chosen to save no one. So in a sense, Jesus did not have to die. But, but, he did. The story we just read, the account. Everybody saw him. He dies on the cross, and it wasn't a, meaningly a meaningless death because he had something to die for. So what was it? Point two, Jesus had to die because of God's love, his glorious love. I'm going to give you a Rolodex of passages. You can write down the address if you want. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 through 8. Moses is speaking to the people of Israel. They're about to go into the promised land. Moses had been on the mountain with God on, on Sinai, right? He had, he had been in the presence of God to where he had to veil his face because he was glowing with the presence of God. I mean, this guy was there 40 days, 40 nights with God, and he's reminding them of God's words. And here's what he says. The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Here's what he said. God set his heart on you because you're the most amazing people in the world. No. He says, no, it's not because you were the greatest or the biggest. In fact, you were the fewest. You were the least. He did it because he loved you. He loved you because he loved you. What? That's what he says. John 3, 16. Most famous passage that we have in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. John 15, verse 13, Jesus tells his disciples, no one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. And you're my friends if you'll do what I command. Romans 5.8, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The whole entirety of scripture says God loves you to the degree that he would go to a cross because of his glorious love. This reveals the maximum abundant glory of God because God is motivated and determined by his own love and not by our worthiness or loveliness. Let me say that again. This reveals the maximum abundant glory of God because God is motivated and determined by his own love and not our worthiness. If you want to know the glorious love of God, you need to look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. And here's what it means for us. It means that we are saved. You, are, you can be eternally secure forever. You can walk out of this room full of joy knowing like what we just sang, my future is heaven because Jesus loved you with a love that was not based upon your worthiness. 
We're saved by the quality of his love for us and not by the quality of our love for him. That's good news. Have you ever faltered in your faith? Have you ever gone through a season where your devotion to God was lacking? Probably. But the cross tells us that it was all about his love and not our worthiness. The cross says, I love you. Now, here's the thing. The, the legalists, right, that perspective, like Tina Turner, it says, what's love got to do, got to do with it? You know what I'm saying? Because the most loving thing you can do for a person is to make them pay. Because then they'll learn. This mindset keeps man at the apex and center of existence and glory because if man is good, it's really simple. If man is good, good comes to him. If man is bad, bad comes to him. There's lots of religions that have that very mindset, karma. If man is good, good comes. If man is bad, bad comes. But here's what happens. God is minimized. He's reduced to the blesser or executor based upon man's choices. Did you see that? It lowers him from the center and apex of existence in glory. The relativistic mindset values love and it's like, I love love. Love is great. We should love. Love is love. Right? But here's the thing it refuses to relinquish control of the definition of love. And thus, it keeps man at the apex and center of existence in glory. And because this mindset doesn't believe in sin, it has no concept of a love that would sacrifice. It does not compute. It is foolishness. A God who loves because he loves, Jesus had to die because he obligated himself in eternity past before the foundation of the world. He had determined, I'm going to go and I'm going to die for them because I'm going to reveal that I love because I love. It's who I am and it shows us his glory. But that's not the only reason Jesus had to die. The third point, Jesus had to die because of God's glorious justice. Oh, this one. See, justice is the righting of wrongs. And the scriptures tell us that all wrongs will be righted. Like it's going to happen, period. There's not going to be anything that is wrong currently, no injustice that will not be rectified. It will all be just because the scripture repeatedly tells us that God is holy and he's just and he's righteous. And because of that, he cannot take our sins and just kind of say, hey, uh, Holy Spirit, can you hand me the broom real fast? And then just sweep them under the rug of eternity and be like, don't, don't worry about that. No one needs to see that. He cannot do so because of his holiness. He would cease to be the righteous and holy and just God that he is if he were to do such a thing. Scripture also tells us that when we violate God's commands in our thoughts even, Jesus said, if you look lustfully at a woman, what? In our words, in our actions, 
in our attitudes that this is all sin and that it, 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 it creates a, a, a wage that's called death, according to Romans chapter 6. And it's even worse than that. The Bible says that I was born in iniquity. I was born, in, meaning it, it just happened to me when I was born. And then sure enough, I did it. We're doomed. And it also tells us that God's righteous wrath is being stored up against sin. That at the very moment that Adam and Eve sin, it was like judgment comes into the earth. Sin creates death and disease. And basically every problem that you're dealing with right now all goes back to sin. Did you know that? Every single one of them all goes back to that. It brought the curse. Now, the relativist doesn't believe this, but cannot escape the reality that sin is absolutely destroying their life right this second. The legalist believes in sin, but they're trying to atone for it in their own way. And both are still saying mockingly, come down from the cross, Jesus. If you're the son of God, prove it. Show us. No need to die for us, Jesus. Hebrews 9 tells us, according to the law, everything is to be purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So God does what he planned to do in this beautiful moment called the cross. And there's this phrase, it's a big Bible word that sounds kind of uh, intimidating, but it's not. It's this substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. So the idea of being a substitute, that Jesus would step into our place, so he's the sinless, sacrificial lamb who comes in in our place in all the wrath and anger of God that could not sweep our sins under the rug, but had to do something about it. All of that goes on to Jesus to the, the point that this crucifixion, that, that process would have taken normally days. For Jesus, it takes hours because it says literally his heart breaks and they pierce his side just to make sure. And what happens is it releases the blood to flow down the mercy seat, just as it said, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, our substitute. And what happens in this moment is he atones, which you can think of it this way, to make at one, at one with God. And here's the beauty of this. It's not just all the negative account, like the red of your like account with God of like all the things we've done wrong, but it actually was not just that. He took all the riches of the positive righteousness of God and also put that into your account before, before the Lord. Isn't that amazing? This is what Jesus does in this one moment of substitutionary atonement. God fulfills his own just requirement in Jesus and the Bible puts these two ideas together in one sentence, and it's incredible. First John 4.10, I think I have a slide for this. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The cross reveals in breathtaking glory the God who's more loving than the God of the relativists. 
and the God who's more holy and just than the God of the legalist in one single moment. The cross of Jesus. So why did Jesus have to die? He didn't have to die, hypothetically, but he did. Jesus had to die because of God's glorious love. And Jesus had to die because of his glorious justice. Now, can I close with this? Which perspective are you most prone to? Which is the one that you're like, if I'm honest, I'm like Chris with the dishwasher. I'm so legalistic about dumb things. Or maybe you're the one who's like, mm, what is sin? And maybe people think you're an incredibly gracious person, but it's not necessarily grace because grace is, uh, it's like there is no sin, so no problems here. Grace is, hey, there's a holy requirement, but God's gonna pay that for you, and guess what? I can treat you differently because of what God did for us. That's what grace is. So which one are you more prone to, the legalist or the relativist, if you're honest with yourself? And here's what the call is. When we see the cross of Jesus anew, it humbles us and it reassures us. Um, whenever we live as though our... Um, our rightness with God is dependent on our worthiness, our past performance, our, um, our, our conversion experience, our, 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 our you know, latest sin victory or struggle. Whenever our rightness with God is based upon those things, we become incredibly insecure people. But when we see that God loved because he loved and that he, he was the perfect sacrifice of love and justice for us, it actually gives us deep, deep security. So here's the question. Will you give God the apex and center of glory in your heart? Let me close with this. This was an illustration a story, you could say a parable. A young, lady, a young lady was driving home for the weekend from college. She had her foot down and the music up, her phone in her hand, when all of a sudden she notices red and blue lights coming through the back windshield. She glances down at the speedometer, 105. Because she's 50 miles per hour over the limit, the policeman arrests her, impounds her car, and she's taken straight to the courthouse to face the judge. She knows this courthouse well because this is her home county and her dad happens to be the judge of the county. She has a mixture of feelings. She's, you know, as any daughter would be, a bit embarrassed and unsure about how her father is going to respond to her being hauled into his courtroom. But on the other hand, she's relieved that it's her dad and he loves me. I mean, surely he'll let me off, she reasons to herself. 
But as she sits down on that cold wooden chair in the courtroom and sees that elevated judge's platform and the engraved county seal behind it, her mood begins to shift. She remembers that he's not just her dad, but he is the judge and he's a fair judge and not given to any bending of the law. He would never punish the innocent. He would never send the guilty away free. And as the side door opens and he emerges with that regal robe on him, her stomach drops. Their eyes meet as he ascends to his place. And his look shows both love and disappointment. After calling the court into session, he says to her, daughter, this officer says you were going 50 miles per hour over the speed limit, and he has a radar reading to prove it. How do you plead? Guilty, she says sheepishly. He pronounces the sentence, that will be $500 or a week in jail, guilty as charge, and he bangs down the gavel. Well, this college girl may have spent too much time at Starbucks or something. She does not have $500 to her name. And so the bailiff comes to take her away to begin serving her time when all of a sudden her dad, the judge says, wait just a minute. He stands up, takes off his robe, and he walks down from behind the bench. Then he reaches into his pocket, takes out his checkbook, and he writes a check for $500, the exact amount of her find. Then he holds it in his hand to her. She's guilty. He's declared her guilty. Justice demands a penalty must be paid. But he loves her. And he's determined to pay the penalty himself on her behalf as he stands there offering her the check. What must she do? Accept it or reject it? And as we close, here's my offer to you. If you have not accepted the full payment of Jesus on your behalf, the love and the justice today, you need to receive what he's done for you. Because if you don't let him pay for that for you, you're going to have to pay for that yourself. So I'm telling you, friend, today, give your life, turn your life to Jesus Christ, the payment for you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To support our work, you can like, share, subscribe, or you can donate at rin-church.org.